Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Last week, we started a two-week conversation on Jesus, women, and the church. Uh, we looked at a whole bunch of statistics. We talked about the historical oppression of women, uh, some alarming stats, you know, but we came to a real simple but alarming conclusion that, uh, you know, really there has been no singular people group that has ever existed on planet Earth that has been as historically oppressed as women has been, has been historically abused, disregarded as women. And a couple of quotes that uh, we, we, we shared that will help frame our minds as we approach the subject. I'd like to just revisit those two quotes. I just love them. It's on justice. Eugene Cho says this, to do justice means to render to each what each is due. It is based on the image of God in every person, the imago Dei, that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. Next slide. Ken Weitzman, he says this about justice. Justice is the single best word, both inside and outside the Bible, for capturing God's purposes for the world and humanity's calling in the world. Justice is, in fact, the broadest, most consistent word the Bible uses to speak about what ought to be. Now, as we approach this subject of Jesus, women, and church, I'd like to frame uh, your, your mind, frame your thinking as we approach this subject. That This is not fundamentally a theological issue. This is a justice issue. It's a justice issue. The imago Dei, the image of God, to render to each what each is due. Justice is the singular best word to describe what ought to be. And women historically have not been treated the way they ought to be. And we are learning to do better. Can someone say amen? amen? And just like any justice issue, it starts with the acknowledgement of the issue, getting educated on the issue, and striving to be better. Today, women are still being objectified, women are still being oppressed, and women still lack equal opportunity. It's not a thing of the past. It is present, it is happening right now as we speak. Women's rights, according to Sarah Wooden, researcher and author, is, she says this, that it is the paramount moral challenge of the 21st century. From a recent US statistic that states women around the world aged 15 to 44 are more at risk from rape and domestic violence than from cancer, car accidents, war, and malaria. Think about that. Women aged between 15 to 44 are more at risk. They are more likely to be raped, to experience domestic violence than cancer, than car accidents, than malaria. From that statistic to the recent public outroar that came from a voyeurism case that happened in NUS, uh, a girl named Monica Bay, she says this in an Instagram post. The paranoia never goes away. This nagging feeling at the back of your mind, telling you you are never safe. If not familiar with this re recent incident, basically she was showering in the dormitory and a boy uh, went in and started filming her as she began to shower. And uh, you know, the whole uh, incident uh, got viral over social media and she posted that. that she says this, you know, telling you that you are... This nagging feeling that she experiences on a daily basis at the back of your mind, telling you that you are never safe. Here's a conclusion I'd like to draw us to. The world, in many ways today, has ceased to be a safe place. The world is not a safe place. But I'd like to pose us a question today. The world is not a safe place, but can our community, can the church be a safe place, or is the church a safe place for women to thrive, to flourish, to be all that God has called them to be? 
can the world be, can the church be first and foremost a safe place? Never mind the world. Let's not talk about the world right now. There's so many issues. But let's talk about this community. Let's talk about us, the church. Can this place, the church, be a safe place for women? Can it be a safe place for women? Today, part two, we're going to spend some time exploring a passage in the Bible that seems to be prohibitive in nature. You know, I promise you that I was going to do this. If any of you are familiar with the Bible, you know some verses, they, they kind of trip you up. You know? And so we're going to explore one of them today. But just a heads up, okay, today, very technical, very long, a lot of information. I know this, is, this just doesn't sound fun to begin with, but usually I'm really fun. But today, you know, it's, you're getting all heady. That's why I wear my, you know, my pullover thing, so I look very <laughs> professory. Like, you kind of expect the kind of sermon I'm going to preach by the, my dressing, you know. If t-shirt, that means I'm going to go bam, 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 but today, you know, stats and technical stuff. <laughs> but truthfully sp- speaking, thank you, Desmond, front row. But truthfully speaking, this will be the most technical set of teachings I've ever done, and, uh, but I, I really believe that it's going to bless you. And so my sermon titles up there, Half the Sky, Part 2, Jesus, Woman, and the Church. If you're not familiar with this whole thing of Half the Sky, it comes from a Mao Zedong quote. He says this, and I don't know whether I can pull up a miracle again. Fu nu neng ding ban bian tian. Women hold up Half the Sky. It's like a party trick when Andre reads Chinese. Fu nu neng ding ban bian tian. Okay. Mao Zedong, women hold up Half the Sky. And Mao Zedong was many things, but uh, in many ways he was a champion of women's rights and he was a self-professed. Feminist, but I'd like to draw us to another quote. This is from the man, Bill Johnson. He says this When we lose the knowledge of the existence of a creator, we lose the concept of design. When we lose the concept of design, we undermine the discovery of purpose. When we undermine the discovery of purpose, we remove the conviction of accountability. When we remove the conviction of accountability, we undermine the fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of God and wisdom, all we are left with is total confusion. It's total confusion. And in many ways, in approaching gender equality, in approaching women's rights, in approaching women and leadership in the church, whether they can hold certain roles and positions, all we have today is confusion. It's confusion. And the way to solve that confusion, if you go back right up to the top, it comes with the knowledge of the existence of a creator that we are created with a design, with a divine purpose. And it's with that that we look at the book of Genesis. I know we read this set of scriptures last week, but it does us good to read Genesis again. It's at the front. You know, sometimes you are too in the middle, but you need to go to the front. Genesis chapter 1, it says this, Then God said, in verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The word man there does not refer to just a singular man. It does not refer to just a male species. That word man there is the Hebrew word Adam, which uh, which would more accurately describe mankind. So it, it really means let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth, including cockroaches. Women, you can crush the head of the cockroaches. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Good job, church. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of sea, birds of air, and all that good stuff. Next slide. 
Genesis 2, verse 15, it says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now notice in the first slide, it says, The Lord God took the man. Now this the man, it refers to the singular man. It refers to Adam. Now the Lord God took Adam, put him in the garden. And then he commanded him, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now this is really pertinent information. So lock that in your brain, okay? But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you shall not eat it. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now we explored that word helper last week. That word helper is actually the word Azer. And Azer doesn't mean a domestic, uh, you know, you stay at home, you do the cooking, you do a cleaning kind of helper. That word helper there, you know, um, more, it, it was used Two times, I believe two or three times to describe woman, but some 16 times in the Bible is used to describe God. So figure, God is my help. Where does my help come from? This kind of thing. It's a powerful word that is used in battle. And so this kind of helper is not just a secondary, second fiddle kind of role, but it is the strong helping that we, that kind of help. And so women, you were created to help. Now let's look at the, the next uh, site. Now, this is after the fall, and so it says in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bear forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, we read Genesis 1. Genesis 1, it says that God created mankind. He created them male and female, and then comes the mandate from God, have dominion over everything. Men and women, I created you to have dominion, to rule, to reign, to subdue. Follow me. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see after the fall, in that last verse, it says this, that your desire, speaking to the woman, shall be for a husband, and he shall rule over you. Now we came to a conclusion last week that this whole hierarchy thing, this whole man having authority and, and lording over women, that was a direct causation of the fall. Now, we believe that Jesus, through the cross, restored us back to Eden, restored in the mercy with God, restored our deep walk with the Lord, restored our divine purpose and mandate. But for some reason, historically in the church, we do not believe that that same rights was afforded to women. But I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus, through the cross, but also through the way he treated women in that day, says to us that he has restored women to that divine mandate and purpose. Amen? Yeah. <clears throat> now, before we go, in, go any further, I'll just like to draw us a recap. Let's have that up. Okay, so this is the recap from last week. We are all equally made in God's image. Amen? Amen. Men and women are called to be co-rulers equally over creation. Point three, men and women are co-sources of one another. Profound statement, right? Eve out of Adam and all men out of woman. Boom. Four, Eve became Adam's helper, not as a servant, but from a position of power. Five, first mention of male authority over women is connected to the curse of four. Six, Jesus communicates to us his value for women. He invites, teaches, and equips women as disciples. During the 2008 U.S. presidential elections, two stories ran concurrently in the press that revealed a striking contrast between the, experience, the extremes uh, experienced by 21st century women. The media was trumpeting that 
then New York's uh, state senator Hillary Clinton's near capture for the Democratic Party's nomination for the presidency, bringing a woman within reach of the most powerful office in the world. It was a moment to savor. Yet while crowds were cheering and voters were turning out in record numbers in support of Hillary's historical race for the White House, reports of brutal honor killings in Islamabad surfaced on the internet. Three Afghan teenage girls were buried alive for the crime of merely planning to choose their own husbands. Two older women, a mother and an aunt, were shot to death while pleading desperately for the girls' lives to be spared. And who were their executioners? The girls' fathers, brothers, and uncles. This is the polarizing world that we live in. While there has been much progress for women's rights, that women are, are really breaking through the gas ceiling, they're beginning to hold high-level positions in some of these great corporations and companies. While that is happening, at the same time, we still see tremendous oppression, suppression, degrading of women in the world. We live in a world of extremes. The 21st century challenge poses a threefold question to the church. First, what message does the church offer women in the 21st century? Is Christianity good news for women? The second question is this, what will the church do to address the rampant suffering of women throughout our world? Will we lag behind the rest of the world in fostering the flourishing of women and girls, or will we join together in taking the lead in global advocacy and activism on behalf of the widow, the trafficked, the marginalized, and the oppressed? The third question is this, what message are we sending to the world by how we value and mobilize our own daughters? Will the whole church openly benefit from women's gifts and contributions, or will the body of Christ attempt to fulfill a mission that dwarfs our resources without the full participation of half the church? What is it costing us when half the church's gifts go untapped? Now, you might not be familiar with the different theological uh, positions on this, but basically there's a position uh, that uh, you know, stands with the belief that women are to not hold certain uh, positions in the church, particularly uh, that of pastor, that of teacher, that of elder, and it ranges uh, in severity in different uh, uh, you know, movements and different uh, denominations. But for us, you know, if you have observed over time that we have uh, publicly uh, acknowledged women leadership in this church, we have women speakers, we have women pastors, uh, we are for uh, empowering women in this church. Instead of casting a powerful gospel vision that both validates and mobilizes women, the church's message, and this is talking about the global historic church, the church's message for women is mixed at best, guarded, negative, and small at worst. Now the question is this, does the gospel only offer a guarded small message for women, that women are to play a small and albeit insignificant role in God's kingdom? Or does the gospel overturn the culture's small, diminishing, and often degrading message for women with a clarion call to live within the boundless parameters Jesus defines, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? Because historically, the church has told women that you can do that to a certain degree, that you can't actually fully live out and express that verse. You can't do so with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. You have to curtail. You have to limit yourself. And women historically have been accused of being Jezebels, usurpers, aggressive, when they seem to be leading. It's sad to say that the church historically has limited 
women. Last week, we read some depressing quotes from early church fathers. How many of you remember some of that? Yeah? No, it's so painful to read some of that. No, but I have more. Early church fathers from St. Augustine, he says this, It is the natural order among people that women serve their husbands and children and their parents because the justice of this lies in the principle that the lesser serves the greater. Horrid. This is the natural justice that the weaker brain serves the stronger. John Calvin, 16th century, he says this, Since God was thinking of the man, sorry, typo, it certainly follows that the woman is only an accessory. And why? Because she was only created for the sake of men, and she must therefore direct her whole life toward him. Martin Luther says this, Girls began to talk and to stand on their feet sooner than boys because weeds always grow up more quickly than good crops. Horrendous. But, you know, honorable mention today, last week we did Confucius, Aristotle for the win. Aristotle says this, A proper wife should be as obedient as a slave. I do love Aristotle. I do love Martin Luther. I do love all of them. But we came to a conclusion. You no, know, these are all my theological heroes. Please, please listen to me. These are all my heroes. But you know, it, it brings it brings to point that you know we can be so so right on many things, but so so wrong on others. And we believe that these men, great as they may be, are categorically wrong on the position. But it may surprise you to know that much of the suppression of women and their voice still lives on today. You know, I was doing some research and reading some case studies and some stories of women and their experiences with the church. And I was reading the story of one woman where she uh, was getting baptized on a Sunday. And oh, we do the same thing. They, they were all lined up in the church and they were giving their public testimony of faith, why they believed in Jesus before they were getting baptized. And they're going down the row and they're all giving the testimony. And when it came to the women, the mic was withheld from her and she was told to whisper a testimony to another man so she could share, so he could share on her behalf. The voice of women was quite literally silenced in the church. Another woman wrote that as she began to take the pulpit and began to speak, droves of men began to leave the church because they could not submit to the authority of a woman. There's a hashtag going around uh, that was popularized, I think, something like 2017. It's hashtag things only Christian women here. Do not look it up now. Do it later. Some, hash, some, some uh, statements that came up from the hashtag, it goes, uh, uh, a woman was saying that, she, she, that this statement was made to her, you are an amazing leader. You'll make an excellent pastor's wife someday. Another statement is this, you have tremendous leadership gifts. It is too bad you weren't born male. And another statement, and we hear this all too often in church, men will look at you and be tempted, be stumbled, and sin. And it was an indictment on her, asking her to dress up better. These are laughable statements, right? You know, quite, quite some of us are giggling. But oftentimes, you know, these statements come laced with tremendous pain. Some of you might have had that statement made to you. We see the oppression of women played out in some laughable way, some dumb ignorant statements, but we also see it played out on more insidious ways. The rampant sex scandals that have been plaguing the Catholic Church. One commentator wrote, men who rape remain unpunished, while women are punished simply for thinking. Horrid. On the evangelical side of the fence, allegations of sexual misconduct against Bill Hybels, founder of Willow Creek Community Church, which at one time boasted an attendance of 25,000 members, were found to be true. The scandal emerged after Hybels' former assistant shared of occasions of inappropriate touching, groping, lewd comments, sexual acts, and at one time, Hybels instructed his female assistant to buy pornographic material so that they could watch it together under the guise of research. 
horrific. And I say this not in the lightest sense. In many ways, the institutional church has been used as a tool to not just disempower, but degrade women. And we need to be better. Dennis Prato, who uh, is with an organization called Christians for Biblical Equality International, he says this, At its most repugnant, the belief that women must be subjugated to the wishes of men excuses slavery, violence, forced prostitution, genital mutilation, genital mutilation, and national laws that omit rape as a crime. Human life possesses an intrinsic dignity and value because it is created by God in its own image for the distinctive destiny of sharing in God's own life. It is a travesty that men have systematically denied women the opportunity to utilize the full extent of their gifts for God's glory. Last week, we read about Jesus and his treatment of women in a society where women had virtually no rights. Let's have that recap up. In that day, women had no public rights. They had no legal rights. They were Torah illiterate. They weren't allowed to go to school. It was a largely patriarchal society. They were marry young. They had no property or inheritance. They were largely, if not completely dependent on men, and they could not outwardly express their devotion. And this, takes, this puts all of Jesus' interaction with women in a new light. And so my, 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 my thought is this. If Jesus demonstrated the empowerment of women, and we see the direct causation between the fall and the suppression of women, why has the church historically and presently, still today, oppressed women and suppressed women? Where and how did we go so off course? And it's with that that we land on what is commonly referred to as the prohibitive passages. And these are a list of passages that seem to suggest to us that women are second class and therefore are to have limited rights, access, privileges, and functions. Now we read some of them up here. You know, I, I, I won't go into all of them due to time, but in 1 Corinthians, it talks about headship, hair and head covering. Notice none of you are wearing your head coverings. 1 Corinthians 14, women should be silent in church. 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach. 1 Timothy 3, overseers should only be male. Now you, you might uh, go, where's the Ephesians verse about women submitting to husband, that kind of stuff? Uh, that will be really well covered in our MFL, PFL, PMC. So <laughs> I don't want, you know, I think they do a much, they will do a much better job than I'll be able to do. And so I want to highly encourage you to go for that if that is an issue. On the surface, a handful of passages appear to teach against the biblical flow of relational equality. But a closer reading resolves the apparent contradictions and reinforces equal partnership between men and women in Christian ministry. And I've said this last week that it is irresponsible for us to practice the empowerment of women in this church without tackling some of these verses. And we'd like to do so with one of them today. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now a bit of background uh, to Bible and so you can better understand uh, some of the context surrounding uh, the, the actual Bible and also uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Most of the New Testament letters called epistles were written to specific people or churches. We're getting a bit technical. Please follow me. I'm getting you somewhere good. Amen? Yes. Amen. The exceptions are the book of James, Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are called general epistles because they were not specifically addressed to a person or group. 
In 373 AD, all the letters, according with the four Gospels and the book of Revelation, were assembled into one book that we now call the New Testament. Therefore, a first century congregation, hear this, would have derived their doctrinal understanding of the kingdom, not from the New Testament as a whole, but from a combination of the Old Testament, referred to as the Torah, a letter from an apostle, if they had received one, and anything taught to them by a teacher or a pastor. Now, it would have been common for letters addressed to one particular church to be copied and passed around to other churches. But it's important to understand that no first century church would have possessed anything close to what we now term the New Testament. Nor would most of them had the privilege of reading more than one or two letters. His letters, Paul, were written to address specific situations in specific locations. The problem is that oftentimes the context of an epistle is either misunderstood or ignored. And then well-meaning people take God's situational counsel and try to enforce it universally. Now, on the position of women empowerment and uh, versus, you know, women are not supposed to take on certain roles in the church. The way I describe it is this, you know, I, I don't think this is a Christian, you know, like empowerment movement equals like, this is Christian and if you do not empower women in the church, then you are a you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus. I don't think it's, it's, it's that distinction. I, I choose to look at it more as like, a, you know, you have California, and then you, once you cross California, what's the next state? Oregon, Oregon, right? And so it, it's state lines, right? But the two states are still within the national boundaries. And I view this position on uh, women and their empowerment and their roles in church as a state line as opposed to a national line. And I do believe that you can still be Christian uh, and hold an unfavorable position on women leadership in church. But I do think you're wrong. Okay? <laughs> First Timothy chapter 2. Okay, are we ready to read this together? Okay. Verse 11, it goes, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And we've run out of time, and so we'll end the service now. <laughs> okay, what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to take this step, step by step. Okay, this is really technical, but uh, I think it's really important for us to, uh, one, you know, understand that the Bible, uh, you know, I, I love the plain reading of Scripture, but sometimes, you know, it really helps us to understand the historical, cultural context and where and uh, who the, the author was writing to and draw out these principles and apply them into our life. Um, but we're going to take it step by step, and I'm going to help debunk certain bad beliefs and uh, certain misconceptions surrounding this passage. Are you okay? Good? <clears throat> Now, I've done the best I can. This is like two weeks worth of research. I've read like 16 commentaries on this. And so you're getting like a 30-minute talk that has taken me like some 12 hours to come. So appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Joy. <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you. Well, let's go. Paul's reason for writing. The primary motivation of this letter, uh, scholars will all agree, is to address the best way to respond to false teaching and deception spreading through Timothy's church. Something is going wrong in Ephesus. Women were especially deceived and were passing on the deception. 
That was because in that day, women were largely uneducated aside from those of the upper class, but even then, far less than men. This left them open to the deception of false teachers invading the church. Secondly, the context in which Timothy is pastoring his new church gives us further clues to the culturally conditioned nature of Paul's prohibition. We know that women in that day, in that place, held prominent leadership roles in a religious cult that permeated Ephesus. The center of this cult was the temple of Artemis or Diana. Wonder Woman. And, oh, sorry. <laughs> the center, they are Lucy already. Come back, come back to me. Wonder Woman is great. Girl got up for the win. Okay, come back. The center of this cult was the temple of Artemis or Diana, an enormous structure that was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Part of the religious function of these female spiritual leaders was to engage in ritualistic prostitution. In this context, having newly converted pagan women in leadership positions would have been unwise and would have formed a barrier to the furthering of the Gospels. Okay? And so with that in mind, the cultural historical context that we read this passage of scripture. Now the first line goes, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. For women in the church of the first century, the idea of learning was an outrageous one. It was the men who learned, not the women. Women stayed home from the synagogue. They didn't speak in public or occupy themselves in the things of law. To a first century female, Paul's admonition to quietness and submission was nothing new. That was what they would commonly understand as the posture of learning. Quietness and submission. How else would you learn? Do you learn by talking over the teacher? Do you learn by you know, choosing to have all these preconceived ideas and perceptions in your head while the teacher is teaching? No, you learn in quietness and submission. And so what Paul was saying that this is the posture to which you adopt in order to learn. Now, this admonition was nothing new, but it was the call to learn that was the shocking wake-up call. In these few verses of scripture, Paul was radically changing the rules. Under the new regime inaugurated by Christ, women were given the same opportunity to grow in their faith as the men. This was radical stuff for the Greco-Roman world. It was a grand departure from a culture that considered the words of the Torah. In the Torah, it says this, that better the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. It was a far departure from what was commonly understood and believed. Now, this brings the story of Mary and Martha into new light. It's extremely illustrative. Luke shows us Mary at Jesus' feet. Now, sitting at the feet of a rabbi and a teacher was one of the primary postures of learning. The disciples will sit at the feet of their rabbi in order to learn. One interpretation is that Mary has taken the place traditionally reserved for male rabbinic, rabbinical students. Martha, as often happens even today among women when the rules of patriarchy are challenged, protests. But Jesus praises Mary's thirst to learn more about God. And he says this, it is Mary who has chosen the better part. Now the protest came when Mary invaded a space that was traditionally reserved for one gender. And she came in to learn. And in that day, you did not learn just for learning's sake. You learned in order to teach. And Mary was invited into that position to learn and then to teach. Something that would have been completely outrageous in this first century context. Are you still with me? Yeah. Is this good stuff? Okay. Thank you for the encouragement. Now, next one. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. She must be quiet. History tells us that the town was a haven for goddess worship, and in particular, the cult of Artemis Diana. People came from all over Asia Minor to pay homage to the fertility goddess and visit the famed temple in her honor. The teachings of the cult were far removed from the teachings of Christianity. Devotees believed that all life flowed from the goddess and therefore women were superior to men. They were born first, seen to be the origin of wisdom and needed no man to marry or reproduce. And one of the cultish beliefs was that because women uh, took the bite of the fruit first that she gained access to some secret wisdom, some secret knowledge kind of thing. And so that... Uh, per, uh, per, that really um, lost me. So that was the, the belief, and they, they thought that women were superior to men. Now, it seemed these false teachings were infiltrating the Christian church as women began to usurp the position of those who were established and qualified. Paul's solution for these women were to learn and not teach. They should adopt a posture of humility and quietness, acknowledging their ignorance and submitting to those who knew more. The teachings of Artemis were not to be confused with the teachings of Jesus. Now, the word authority. Now, this is where we get tripped up. I do not permit a, word, a woman to assume authority over a man. That word authority is, is actually the Greek word authenteo or authentain. Now, that word, scholars will call it a hippex legomenon. And so that word basically is a very fancy word that I learned and it's new. And so I thought I'll just show off, but clearly it didn't work. Hepex legomenon. And so what that word means is that, right, that that word, authentic or authentic, only appears one time in the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. Now, when you interpret a word, one of the things that scholars do is that they would uh, look at other occurrences where the word was used, and then from there you can get a general sense of what the meaning is. And now authority, when it's used in the Bible, is always the word exousia, but in this Verse, I do not allow, I do not permit a woman to assume authority of men. That word is authentic or attentain. Now, this is a drastically different word from what uh, the usual word for authority would be. Authentic would mean to usurp authority, to have dominion. In the earlier usage of the word, it signified one who have his own hand killed or others, killed others or killed himself. Later, it came to denote one who acts on his own authority, hence to exercise authority or dominion. I do not permit women to have authority over men. Now, understanding the context of Artemis, Diana worship, and understanding that women, they were trying to usurp men from their role, yeah. this verse makes complete sense. Now, this verse, I would like to suggest to you, does not only apply to women. If men were doing the same thing to women, Paul would have addressed the men as well. That it's not right to usurp authority to have dominion, to remove the established leader, to take on the position of power. Now the next one. This is, tr this is tricky. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now most men relish in the knowledge that we weren't the one that messed up. We were like, you know, we were chocho by the woman, therefore the whole thing went kaboom. And, you know, men, you know, we've lived this whole like, yeah, you know, it's your fault, you know, but... I was just, you know, obedient and, and all that good stuff. Right? 
on the surface, this instruction seems really puzzling, right? What difference does it make that Adam came before Eve? Wouldn't this same logic require that the animals have authority over humans? Think about it, okay? <laughs> Think about it, right? Because Adam came first, first so, that, so Eve has to submit to it. What came before Adam? Creepy crawlies, birds, fish. And you want to, you want to like, you know, be really invested into this whole like, time, linear kind of thing. If you look at the pattern of Genesis, God seems to be in uh, the habit of saving the best for last. He goes, birds, animals, men, and then women. And so in many ways, if we want to be invested in that, women should have authority over everything else. My personal opinion. <laughs> the puzzle is removed when Paul's instruction is seen in light of a common rabbinic understanding of what happened in the, in the garden. This is the common understanding uh, that is present in Hebrew culture. According to this tradition, hear me, men, as I say this, Adam was at fault for not properly instructing Eve about the dangers and consequences of eating from the forbidden tree. Adam had been created first and had received instructions directly from God. We read that earlier, that it was the man who was given the instruction. Eve had been created second and was dependent on Adam for this information. This is why she was more vulnerable and also why Adam bore the brunt of the responsibility for the fall. If we read this in this light, Paul's instruction to Timothy begins to make sense. Paul is appealing to this rabbinic understanding as a rationale for telling Timothy not to allow women in his church to teach because they are in the same position as Eve. The women weren't Torah, uh, Torah literate. They had no access to spiritual teachings. Therefore, they were not equipped to teach, to teach in the church. Therefore, they were vulnerable, susceptible to false doctrine and to false teaching. This warning, however, would have no application in a cultural context in which women are afforded as much opportunity to learn as men. Oh, mouthful. Now the last one. This is the fun one. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, if you read this verse at face value, women, you say the sinner's prayer, you walk, you believe in Jesus, all that good stuff, but if you do not have a child, you're not saved. No, no, think about it. And, and take a moment to consider that historically, in many places, churches have held to that as a command, as a means for you to be saved, that you needed to bear a child in order to be saved. So think about what, think about women who couldn't naturally conceive in that day, think about single women. Were they then omitted from the right of being saved because they couldn't bear a child? Now let me explain so you get a bit easier. Now, the word child, uh, what saved through childbearing, okay, saved through childbearing. The word saved is actually uh, a word that would be translated as to preserve or to keep safe. Now, there are two interpretations of this verse that differ from the plain reading. Number one, most will agree the verse would mean that as supposed to, women have to, sorry, most will agree that the verse would mean that women will be saved or preserved in childbirth as supposed to women are saved through childbirth. Am I making sense? 
And the other one is that, and this is what a lot of scholars have come to, others would say that the verse is allegorical. And a better translation would be, through the birth of the child, meaning Jesus. Through the birth of the child, meaning Jesus. Now, you might go, that's a lot of information. Can you sum it up? Well, there's a great guy, okay? He wrote a, a translation called the Passion Translation, and he's done a lot of work in uh, reading the Hebrew, the Aramaic text, and he's come up with what I believe is a great uh, translation of the original text and script. And so can we have that verse up? Second, uh, First Timothy chapter 2, he says this, verse 11, Let the women who are new converts be willing to learn with all submission to their leaders and not speak out of turn. I don't advocate that the newly converted women be the teachers in the church, assuming authority over the men, but to live in peace. For God formed Adam first, then Eve. Adam did not mislead Eve, but Eve misled him and violated the command of God. There are, yeah. Yet a woman shall live in restored dignity by means of her children receiving the blessing that comes from raising them as consecrated children, nurtured faith and love and walking in wisdom. As we move on, I'd like to bring up two points. Point number one. The principles that we have drawn out from that text applies to both men and women. While Paul was writing to specific issues surrounding women, the principles are sound and apply to both genders today. Lauren Cunningham, founder of YM, says this about that text. So should women be silent? Yes, just like men. Should women exercise self-control as they minister? Yes, just like men. Should women seek to educate themselves so that they can better edify others as they minister? Yes, just like men. The principles apply to both men and women. The second, the second thing I would like to uh, uh, point out to you is this. We must be careful to not separate Paul's writings from his practice. You must be careful to not separate Paul's writings from his practice. Women were clearly permitted to teach in the New Testament. We read that Priscilla taught Apollos, one of the greatest leaders in the church, and was a co-worker of Paul. Phoebe had authority as a deacon, and Junea was spoken of as an apostle. Paul affirms and commends the ministry of many other women in the early church. So the remark about denying women in authority needs to be interpreted in its specific context. I'm making sense. New Testament scholars commonly acknowledge that far from reinforcing the patriarchy of his age, Paul advocates dismantling those barriers which privilege some and penalize others. And we find his entire belief summed up in what I believe is a slam dunk verse. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. It says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now you might think this is just about value as opposed to function. I don't think Paul would tolerate a, a church where the Jews sat on one side, the Gentiles sat on one side, or, or you're a slave and not free person, therefore I limit certain functions to you. This does not uh, play well into the narrative, into uh, the writings of the entire uh, New Testament, into the epistles of Paul. Paul was an advocate of equality. In light of what we just read in the Gospels, whew, you're still tracking me. Better understanding the writings of Paul as well as having our current cultural climate in, in mind, I'd like to bring us to this question. There's this, how can we better value and honor women? How can we better value and honor women in society but also in our community? Now, we, there are um, four prohibitive, prohibitive passages. I only took one. There are three more and you might have a bunch of questions on that. If you have questions... 
please take up my offer, email Matt and Janice. They'll really love to help you. But also, uh, we'll also explore different ways that we can tackle that. Maybe a podcast, uh, maybe we can do a Q&A, maybe we can uh, do up notes on this, but we really want to help you uh, di- dismantle and debunk some of these uh, bad beliefs, okay? Or you prefer to, for me to do like biblical exegesis for the next four weeks? Feel free. Okay. Now, the question is, how can we better value and honor women in society and in our community? Now, we did a fun Insta Story poll as well as surveyed ladies in our life groups. We asked them, how would you like to be valued and honored by men? And these were the results. It goes, and this is a cheat quote for men. You're welcome. It goes, believing in us, words, Words of affirmation and appreciation. Now, this is uh, one of the top responses, words of affirmation and appreciation. And I read a recent stat that uh, girls as young as 13-year-olds were suffering from eating disorders, that the average age of a girl or woman that goes through eating disorder has now dropped to 20. And this is uh, really prevalent. And in, in a culture where girls and women are constantly reminded that they are not enough, that they don't measure up to what is a societal and cultural definition of beauty, which is like 0.001% of the female population, we as men get to affirm and appreciate them. I see all the men taking, up, taking photos. You're welcome. Three, take notice of the little things. Take notice of the little things, you know, when... I'll let you interpret that for yourself. Hey, 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 come down. Four, not subscribing to stereotypes and generalizations. Yeah, very important. And the last one, and this accounts for 90% of the responses. Listen and empathize without trying to offer solutions. I feel the death of myself coming. We receive a, we receive a response that I won't put up, but it, uh, basically the response on like, how do you value and honor women? The respondee, which shall rename anonymous, said, do what Desmond does. And so, from your wife. Huh? Yeah. Everything there. He said. <laughs> That's awesome, right? And this is no, our community's response on how we can uh, better honor and value women. Uh, in our community. Now, I thought that it was really presumptuous for me as a man to go like, hey man, here's what we need to do to honor women, you know. I believe there's a term for it, it's called mansplaining. And so I was like, I, I will not do any of that. But yeah, you know, may we learn to better value and honor women in our community. But you know, we have about five minutes. Do you have five minutes in you to talk about objectification, oppression, and pornography? Wait, okay. <clears throat> I think we as men can do... Uh, certain things to uh, better value and honor women in our society. You know, if we are serious about championing women and their rights, then you know, it should lead to some lifestyle changes. Our working theory of change and transformation is that we make small incremental changes in the right direction. We practice the way of Jesus. And practice would mean uh, you're not uh, immediately good at it. It's a small step. But if you practice and you do it long enough, it becomes transformation. All right? And so the uh, first one I think we can do better is this. We need to resist objectification. We need to resist objectification. Resist objectification. The average porn consumer, likely exposed and hooked in before the age of 18, has no, ex- has no idea what exactly goes into the production of a single pornographic image or video. They might not even think about how or why a performer got to be on camera or the situation that led them to their involvement with porn. 
If someone contributed even more or a substantial amount of the 33.5 billion visits to the world's most popular free porn site in 2018, they probably don't understand the likelihood that they might be getting aroused by images of a performer who didn't appear on film under their own free will. In other words, seeing a victim of human sex trafficking. By some estimates, 4.5 million people are trapped or forced into sexual exploitation globally. Sex trafficking is a big business. It generates $99 billion annually. In one survey, 63% of underage sex trafficking victims said that they have been advertised or sold online on porn sites. According to anti-trafficking nonprofit Rescue Freedom, in nine countries, 49% of sexually exploited women said that pornography was made of them while they were being sold for sex. Let's look at passage scripture, Matthew chapter 5, familiar one. It says this, Jesus' words, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lastly has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, when Jesus is talking about lust, he's not talking about the appreciation of beauty or the momentary flash of sexual desire that we experience. Sometimes a pretty girl walks past and you have that momentary flash of sexual desire. You don't know her. You don't want to be with her. He's not talking about that. Tim Mackey, uh, who writes about uh, this verse, he says this, that Jesus, uh, when he's describing lust, is describing it as anyone who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her. Dallas Willard for the win, he says, anyone, lust is anyone who looks upon a woman with the purpose of lusting after her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. Now in that last verse, Jesus said, uh, if your right eye causes a sin, gouge it off. Your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I don't think Jesus was an advocate for self-mutilation or else in church we have knives up here and you can respond to your altar call. <laughs> and my, my other, the, the, the other uh, point I'm making for this case is that if Jesus uh, was a fan of self-mutilation, then he obviously missed the most important part to cut off. Oh. <laughs> it's true, right? I had, why not? Okay, that was not well received. <laughs> my point is this. My point is this. Hear me when I say this. Women aren't images. They are the image of God. Yes. Women aren't images. They are the image of God. A woman is not an image. It's not a tool for you to fuel your sexual desire. Women are not images. They are the image of God. The very imago Dei. They are not just images to amuse the sexual appetite of boys. Now I want to move on, but we will be revisiting this topic uh, soon and talking about pornography and how uh, we as men can do better and uh, how we as a community can see that broken in our community. Okay, I know I'm running out of time, but I have two more for you. Uh, Maybe we'll do one, but the next one is this. We refuse to participate in oppression. We refuse to participate in oppression. Now, this may play out in many ways, but I'd just like to bring up one that I believe will be very relevant to our community. So a while ago, I was doing research for the Justice Series. I was doing a lot of reading on different uh, injustices that's happening in the world today. And I came to a realization uh, as I was uh, doing my research that that I, Andre Tan, your pastor, was oppressing people every day. 
I was oppressing people every day. And that realization came as I look at what was in my wardrobe. That realization came as I look at what was in my wardrobe. I was directly contributing to a world where half the population lives on less than $3 a day and 28 million people live in slavery. Here are some stats. One in six people in the world work in the fashion industry. Ten of millions of them, which makes less than $3 a day, most of them women. According to a 2011 report on India, three million people, majority of whom are women, work in textile production industry under inhumane conditions. Workers start off uh, on a low monthly wage between uh, 25 pounds, which is about uh, 30 US dollars. That's a monthly wage. These are really low wages, which are way below what we commonly understand as minimum wage. It means that workers will always be stuck in the poverty cycle. A typical workday starts at 8 a.m. and ends at 10 p.m. for a total of 14 hours per day. These women will be subjected to abuse and beatings. Job security is not guaranteed as the majority of the workers are employed on short contracts. If we are serious about this mandate of justice, then it should be reflected not just in the way we think about an issue, but also in the way we speak, uh, in what we buy, how much we buy. So what should we do? No, I'm not saying like throw up your entire wardrobe. No, just get rid of everything. And and Marie Kondo, the, the whole thing. Justice Marie Kondo. I'm not saying that. that. That will defeat the purpose. But it goes back to our working theory, right? That you make small incremental changes in the right direction. What can we do? We can make small changes. I'm not saying throw out all your clothes. You have nothing to wear, which will present another problem in and of itself. <laughs> this will defeat the purpose. But it will help us to just, before we buy something, to just be aware of what we are buying, where this is coming from, who made it. Two, there's an app uh, that I found recently. It's called Good On You. Don't download it, download it now, download it later. But basically, on, on this app, you can search up a brand. Most brands are on it, and you can, they, they attach an ethical rating to these brands. And so you actually know how that brand is performing ethically. And the third is that you know, maybe, just maybe, spend a bit more money getting ethically made stuff. It will tend to cost you more, but you know that the workers who made it were fairly treated and paid. Okay? All that to say, I'm not judging you for the brands that you buy. I own stuff from a brand that I will not name, but it will destroy all of you if I name that brand, that has been known to be super-duper unethical. I'll leave you to discover it on your own. Okay, 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 calm down. <laughs> so, wait, what am I wearing? <laughs> okay. The last one is this, okay? The last one is this. Opportunities for all. Fair opportunities for all. I'll leave you, I, I know we're running out of time, but I'll leave you to discover what it means for you in your own arena if you are a business owner or whatever your view is. I'll, I'll leave you to discover what it looks like. But it will definitely look like, hear me, choosing to break free, hear me, choosing to break free from certain stereotypes and perceptions that we have built over time. Example, women are emotional and therefore shouldn't take senior positions. For our church, this is what it looks like for us to practice it. One, we will have... We have and will continue to have women pastors in this church. We will and continue to have, we have and continue, we have and will continue to have women speakers. And one of the things that we'll look at is establishing a minimum number of times to ensure women representation on the pulpit and uh, not just on special events like Mother's Day. I think we broke the mold when I spoke on Mother's Day. And so, you know, women, you are free from the Mother's Day obligation. But, uh, <laughs> but it will also look like greater representation on our leadership. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to do so hard is trying to get better, uh, more women representation on our church board. Yeah. And so, you know, if women, we approach you, 
please know that it's, it's not just for uh, functionality, but it's for the sake of equality and, <laughs> and responding to scripture and all that kind of stuff, and wisdom. And we believe that you bring a unique and much-needed perspective uh, in leadership, and we desperately need more women in our leadership, in our ranks. And the other thing is that women in this church will never be viewed as accessories to a man's calling. You know, I, I'm so thankful for Daniel and Joy and uh, the leadership that they have modeled for us. And I say this with the best intention. Best intention. So no offense. Best intention. Joy does not behave or look like a traditional woman's pastor. She does not. And that is a beautiful and good thing. I'm so thankful for that, that morning. You know, traditional women's pastor is quiet in the background, bakes a casserole, hosts a prayer meeting. But Joy, you hear her before she... It's like, it's like thunder and lightning. And that's great and beautiful, and that's what we want. Women are not accessories to men. And I'm, I'm so thankful for, for our board that, that you know, has completely agreed with me on, on the matter that Amy is not an accessory to my calling. Amy is not just a, a second fiddle to me. Amy has her own destiny, her own calling that she's free to pursue. Likewise for me. And how we figure that with this whole one flesh, united vision, that's for us to, to, to figure out. But she is not an accessory to my calling. And I hope for all of us to discover the same. That as women, that you're not an accessory, you're not second fiddle to a husband. And husband, you don't have a right to drag a wife around and use her as a statement piece or... <laughs> you know what I mean. Our working theory for change is that we transform through practice. Small incremental changes in the right direction. What we watch, what we buy, where it comes from, and how we speak how we treat and afford opportunities to women. And I love this quote, and we'll wrap up with this final quote from Robert Kennedy. He says this, Few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events, and the total of all those acts will be written the history of this generation. In a pursuit of justice, first we have to acknowledge that there's an issue. Women, we acknowledge that you've been oppressed, suppressed, degraded, in many spheres and arena. We acknowledge that. And as men, as your pastor, we endeavor to do better, to be better. As I close this portion, I'd like to invite, if you're a woman, you're a girl, please stand in this place. And men, let's applaud our women. Awesome. Very cool. Well, yes, man, we have to come to this realization that it's tough to be a woman, even in the 21st century. It's tough. It is hard. And as men, uh, I want to take us through a portion of repentance. You know, you know we, we aren't your, I hope we aren't your, the perpetrators of this, but as men who represent men in the earth, we want to repent on behalf of men. I'd like us to take, go through this portion together as we repent on behalf of the men who have hurt you. But I'd like to read this over you, over you women. As men, repent for the way the cards have been stacked against you in society, for any time opportunity or advancement has been taken away from you just because you are a woman. Repent of any unhealthy stereotypes that have been projected upon you that have caused you to doubt your sense of worth, ability, and identity. We repent on behalf of men for the way you've been treated, demeaned, or disrespected. We repent on behalf of men for the times you were oppressed and made to feel lesser. We repent on behalf of men 
for the time you were ever objectified and made to feel unsafe. We repent on behalf of male church leaders if you were ever undervalued, suppressed, or made to keep silent. As your brothers, we commit to protecting you, to championing you, to empowering you so that you can be all that God has created and designed for you to be. You are women, go and change the world.